This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To the Word of God, to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1. John's Gospel, first chapter. We're going to read from verse 35. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Let's just stop there. Now this morning, uh, we want to continue to look at the Master's Men. Uh, This is a little series we've been doing regarding the lives of the 12 apostles. And uh, we come now to the fourth named apostle, John. And uh, he was, as we know, the younger brother of James. And uh, it would seem like that John was the youngest of all of the apostles. And in fact, uh, he was a son of Zebedee and Salome, and he was a great friend of Peter and Andrew, and also Philip and Nathaniel. It seemed like that Peter and Andrew and James and John, they, they shared in the fishing business together, probably had grown up together probably had went to school together, went to the synagogue together, and, and business together. And of course then, when they met Christ, then they became followers of our Lord Jesus. We also know that John was of the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And that John led the longest of all the apostles. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now John was ambitious. In fact, most of these apostles were ambitious as young men can be, zealous, passionate, ambitious, and understand that they felt that Christ was coming into his kingdom. Uh, Their idea of the kingdom was an earthly one. Jesus' idea of the kingdom was a spiritual one, a heavenly one at that point in time. But nonetheless, they felt that Christ, the Messiah, was going to set up his kingdom, and they wanted to to make sure that they got their place in his kingdom. And John and his brother James, you remember, we talked about it, how that they wanted the right hand, the left hand of Christ when he came into uh, his kingdom. We also know that he had racist tendencies. 
again, he and, and his older brother James, you remember they wanted to call fire down from heaven and incinerate a whole village of Samaritans because they, they dishonored the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so there was that uh, racist tendency. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, as we know. And yet it's amazing how Christ took this young, ambitious, fearless, Samaritan-hating disciple and turned him into the apostle of love. And in the end, he became a very compassionate, merciful, loving, humble disciple of the Lord Jesus. And so that encourages all of us. As we read through these men's stories, we see that all of them had their faults and their feelings and their weaknesses and their strengths, just like all of us. And how that Christ can take the, took them and can take us and make us into what he wants us to be if we allow him and if we follow him passionately. John, like Andrew, was uh, a disciple of John the Baptist. And... Uh, there was something about the Baptist appeal to them, uh, his rugged nature, his fiery preaching, uh, his preaching about repentance and about the coming kingdom that was coming and the Messiah that would come. And, and that absolutely fascinated them because they were students of Scripture. They were brought up in the Old Testament and no doubt they had been looking for Messiah to come. And so they were fascinated and they were attracted to that. And so when they could, because they were fishermen by trade, when they could, they would go out in the wilderness, they would listen to John and get inspired and get challenged and get fired up waiting for the Messiah to come. And in fact... When he did come and they had that encounter with him, you remember we just read there, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And, and Andrew, and it doesn't say John, but because he says, and another disciple, John never referred to himself in the first person. So we, we believe that was John actually. Uh, they said, Lord, uh, where are you staying? He says, come and see. And, and he went. And that has such an indelible impression on John that 60 years later when he writes his gospel, he actually remembers, he says, and it was about the 10th hour of the day. And so that, that was emblazoned in his memory. What an impression Christ must have had on John and in fact, and all of those disciples. <clears throat> now consider for a moment, <clears throat> excuse me, that John, uh, by the time he wrote his beautiful gospel, he was literally the only surviving uh, apostle and disciple. He was the only surviving one of the original ones of Jesus. He's an old man by the time he writes this. He's, he's 90 plus years. And he's a senior pastor uh, and apostle of Ephesus, that area. And his brother James, of course, was beheaded. And, and his, two of his best friends, uh, you know, Peter and Andrew, were crucified. And he, and he lived to see that. And that must have been hurt. That must have pained him to know that his, his, his big brother actually was, uh, was, his head was cut off. And he was there at the time. So that must have been tough. But all of the disciples, they're all gone. They, you know, Matthew and Philip and Nathaniel and Simon and all of them, they're all dead and gone. Even the mighty apostle Paul, he's run his race, his course is finished, he's went to the glory. And so he has seen all of that. And one of the great prophecies of the Lord Jesus, when he talked about Jerusalem, 
and he told them that there's going to come a time when not one stone will be left upon another. And in AD 70, when Titus, the Roman general, came in, and he raised Jerusalem, and he burned it with fire, and he knocked down the temple. And John was there to see that and to know that. He lived through all of that. And how that at least 100,000 Jews were taken captive back to Rome and other places. Uh, and they reckon that 50,000 Jews built the Colosseum. And for those of you, like myself, that stood in the Colosseum, that massive building that held 50 to 80,000 people, uh, you know, and the bloodlust that was there, and thousands died, and thousands of animals died, and human beings was murdered in that very place for the fun and the, and the pleasure of the Roman citizens. And John lived through all of this. And of course, that was the start of the, the diaspora, the, the dispersion of the Jews to the ends of the earth. And so now they have, they have no capital city, they have no temple to worship in, they have no priests left, they have, they have no sacrifices to be made, there's no feast days to be held. I mean, they have nothing. They're just aliens in foreign lands. And John lived to see all of that. John was with Christ right at the very beginning. And he saw all of the wonderful miracles that the master did. He was there at the wedding feast of Cana when he turned water into wine. He was there when Jesus walked in water. He was there when he saw blind eyes opening and deaf ears made to hear and the dumb to speak and the lame to walk and the very dead raised up. He was there in all of that. He saw that with his own two eyes. He was the one standing at the cross. In fact, he was the only, the only one, the only apostle that stood at the cross when Jesus was being crucified with Mary, Jesus' mother, and just a few women. You remember how that Jesus looking down to Mary and says, Behold your son. And looking at John says, Behold your mother. And that was always needed to be said because from that point on, John took Mary and looked after her until the day he died. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said to Peter, remember when Jesus restored Peter on the beach that morning when they came back from that, that empty fishing expedition and Jesus took Peter aside and he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But he says to John, take care of my mother. And so John had that special job to do, and he did it until the very day that she died. Whenever that was, we, we do not know. And so now all of that has passed and gone. And it's only now that the Holy Spirit begins to prompt John to write. He hasn't written anything up to this point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospels has been in circulation for years. No doubt he's read every one of them. Luke wrote the book of Acts, the history of the early church. No doubt he read that with great interest because he was part of that and he's named in it. Apostle Paul, his writings have been circulating for a long time. You know, the Christian letters to the Christian churches, to the Hebrew churches, to the, the prison epistles and the letters to pastors and so forth. And no doubt he's read all of them and enjoyed them and said amen to them all. But now the Holy Spirit comes and begins to prompt him to write. 
a beautiful gospel, special gospel. Remember that Matthew wrote the gospel, his gospel, with the Jew in mind. And Mark wrote his gospel with the Roman in mind. And Luke wrote his gospel with the Greek in mind. But John writes his gospel with the church in mind. And so it's different than the other three. Remember I told you the other three are the synoptic gospels. Sin together and optic see together. And there's lots of similarities. But John's is uniquely different. Very different in fact. Yes, there's some overlapping, but his is special. It seems as though John, having read all those gospels, that he is prompted to put in, by and large, what they didn't put in. And he begins to focus particularly on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gospel. And, you know, he mentions eight different miracles, but he calls them signs because they're pointing to Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and his power and his might and his glory. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, gospel to write. And uh, the synoptic writers, Matthew, Martin, Luke, they focus and concentrate mainly about Christ's Galilean ministry. But John focuses mainly about his Judean ministry. In fact, he spends like something like eight chapters just talking about a few days in Christ's life. At the end, all those intimate moments he had with his disciples, explaining how he was going to go to the cross and all the rest of it and the upper room and all of that. And John spends a lot of time unfolding all of that. It's just a wonderful, wonderful gospel. But the deity of Christ is one of the big things that he wants to constantly bring out. In John chapter 20, 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Hmm. Matthew's gospel shows Christ as the king. Mark's gospel shows him as the servant. Luke's gospel shows him as the son of man, but John's gospel shows him as the son of God. You know, the lineage and all the other ones, but when you come to John, he's right back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when you begin to read through John, you can see what he's emphasizing, and one of them is this, Christ, the Son of God. So that's a very large part of his uh, gospel. His epistles, John was a lover of truth. And he was very, very concerned that truth was being denied, that truth was falling in the street, as it were. Uh, one of the great challenges uh, is false teaching and false preachers and teachers had come into the church. The church is now in its third generation. Uh, and one noted that the first generation is a generation with conviction. They believe everything is true about the Word of God and the Son of God. Uh, they absolutely have a great conviction about that. You could not shake them. It's truth. It's black. It's white. Uh, I mean, everything is just there. They just, that's it. I'm totally convinced of this. But the second generation, 
It's not so much a, a conviction, but a belief. They believe what their fathers has handed down to them, but not with the conviction that their fathers had. They believe it, but not with the same intensity, not with the same strength that their fathers did. And then when you come to the third generation, it's no longer a conviction or even a belief, it's just an opinion. And there's lots of opinions. And anybody's opinion is good as anybody else's. And that's very much like what we're saying today, even in the church today. There's so much compromise when it comes to belief. And everybody's testing everything. And everybody's saying, well, we've got to think about this, and we've got to think about that, and we've got to think about culture, and we've got to think about uh, what's happening in the world today, not a way back then. And so you can see that happening today. So that's what was happening in the early church in John's generations, the third generation of the church. So he's dealing with all of this stuff, and he's, he's contending for truth. He wants truth to be known and to be adhered to and to be lived and walked in. Gnosticism was one of the false teachings. There's four or five of them at least, but Gnosticism was one that was particularly rampant within the church. And it comes from the word uh, gnosis, to know. And the Gnostics believed they had special revelation. And to be part of the, the truth and the real thing, you had to have special revelation. And only they had it. And part of that special revelation when it came to the deity and the humanity of Christ, was blasphemous. <laughs> it was the doctrines of demons, could I say. But it was very appealing. It certainly appealed. And here's why it appealed. Because they basically believed, there's lots of things, but not to bore you with it, but they basically believed this. They basically believed that all flesh, all flesh was inherently evil, and all spirit was inherently good. All flesh was inherently evil, all spirit was inherently good. Now that causes a problem when it comes to the humanity and deity of Christ. Are we saying that Christ in flesh is inherently evil, only the spirit is good? Of course not, that's blasphemous. But that's what was coming across, you see, for their own good. In other words, they thought this. So, Here's, here's, here's how it was attractive. Because in other words, your life in the flesh doesn't really matter because there's nothing you can do about it because it's inherently evil. But as long as you're spiritual, your spirit is inherently good. So as long as you're spiritual, it doesn't really matter how you live as long as you're spiritual. Don't we see that today? Is that not what we see today in Kabbalah or Scientology or any other cult you wish to mention? That you can live whatever way you like but hey, I'm spiritual. Well, that's the same devil with a different hat on, isn't it? It's just the same thing, only it's worded differently, but it's the same thing. But when it came to Christ, when it came to his humanity and his deity, then it was something that was blasphemous. And John was greatly concerned because that teaching, among others, was starting to come into the church and starting to be accepted by this third generation of the church. It concerns me greatly today, by the way, that so much of this stuff is even creeping into the church of Christ today. There's so much compromise. Unbelievable. But it's always ever been that way where the devil has tried to sow the, the tares among the wheat. John was equally big on love as he was in truth. But it was never love at the expense of truth. 
but he wanted a balance between truth and between love. And so he was fearless, he was relentless in the face of this, and he wanted this just to be accepted. Truth was right, it needs to be lived, it needs to be accepted, but we need to walk in love as well as have truth. In 1 John, First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And then in chapter 4, do not believe, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. Gnostics believed also, and this is why John's heading this, they believed that at Jesus' baptism that the Christ Spirit came upon him. But at his crucifixion, the Christ Spirit left him. And so when it came to his humanity and his deity, then that's what was being undermined and attacked, and John wasn't having it. And that's why he wrote his little epistles. When you read his epistles and part of his gospels, and even in the Revelation, he was making sure that people knew what truth was and to stand for it and to make sure it was right. And so he was equally, absolutely equally sure that they had to walk in truth and that they had to walk in love. Now John wrote the book of Revelation. Now, I have to say this because so many Christians call it the book of Revelations. It is not the book of Revelations, although there's lots of Revelations in it. It's the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is the book that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ as we have never seen him before, even as the apostles and disciples have never seen him before. And John was outside the Patmos uh, by the Emperor Domitian. He was outside there as an old, old man to work in those mines. It was a penal colony, hard labor, thinking that would finish him off. But it didn't finish him off. In fact, it was his greatest hour because that's when the Spirit came to him and revealed Christ in a way that no one had ever seen before. And he wrote the beautiful book of Revelation which is fascinating, which we have done studies on in the past, which I can't do at this present time. But it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Now they say, tradition says, then that a, a, a later emperor, uh, Trajan, that he allowed him to come back to Ephesus because he was the 
could we say, the bishop of the churches in Ephesus. He was the senior man. He was the only one left. And so he was the senior man. But John was not without his faults. As all of the disciples and apostles had their faults, as all of us have our faults. I say again, Christ was working with raw material. And he took raw material and he shaped it and molded it into the men that he wanted them to be. And it took a while to do it. It took years to do it. But eventually, they became the men that he envisioned them to be right from the very beginning. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, come to this with me just for a moment. Verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? course he knew exactly what it was but he was wanting to elicit, elicit something from them but they kept silent for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest and he sat them down and he sat down called the twelve and said to them if anyone desires to be first he shall be last of all and servant of all then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so here's the disciples talking among themselves, who's going to be the greatest? Do you think it's you? No, I think it's going to be me. Surely he's going to pick me. This is the way they were talking. Jesus is listening to this. So he faces them. He said, what was that you were talking about? And then they got embarrassed. Because knew, they knew he was going to get at them. So they got embarrassed. So he gave them a wonderful demonstration of humility, didn't he? Took the little child in the midst. Says, except you become a little child. So he gave them that wonderful illustration of humility. Now you would think at that point, wouldn't you? You would think the disciples would have got the message would have learned the lesson, but they didn't. John answered, saying, so John's thinking, I've I got to say something here. So John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he does not follow us. <laughs> Imagine. Jesus is teaching them humility. And they don't get it. And John spouts out, hey, we saw somebody casting out devils in your name and we forbid him to do that. Why would he do that? Because that's our job. We're the big shots around here. We're your followers. Everybody knows us. We're the disciples. They know we're popular now. You see? <laughs> so what does Jesus do? Verse 39, Jesus says, 
do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Ah, Jesus wasn't faced by it at all. Who was this man? We don't know. Certainly wasn't one of the 12. Probably wasn't even one of the 70. He was on the fringes somewhere. Wherever Jesus was, this man was maybe on the fringes watching, listening, being inspired, being challenged. And one day, he meets a man who's possessed with devils. And he thought to himself, I'm going to cast these out in Jesus' name. And he did. And they went out. You remember the sons of Sceva in Acts 19? How those seven sons, how they tried to cast the devils out of a man. And the man tore them apart, beat them all up. And said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? But they knew who this man was. Whoever this man was, they knew who he was. And he who knew the power of Jesus. And when he used his name, those demons left. <laughs> so what John was saying was, he follows not us. He's not in our group. And if he's not in our group, then... We don't want him. We want nothing to do with him because he's not in our group. Now, we would never be at God. Sure, we would. Sure, we would. We would never be at God. No, no. <laughs> of course we would be at God. And sometimes we are like that. He followeth not us. Let me read you a story. A man was walking across a bridge one day and he saw another man standing on the edge about to jump off. He immediately ran over and said, Stop! Don't do it! Why shouldn't I? He said. I says, Well, there's so much to live for. What like? Well, are you religious or atheist? Religious. Me too. Are you Christian? Are you Buddhist? Are you Jewish? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? <laughs> Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you the original Baptist Church of God or are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God? <laughs> Reformed Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you the Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of God Reformation of 1915, the man in the bridge said. To which he replied, die heretic, and he pushed him off. <laughs> he followeth not us. See those Pentecostals? They're a weird bunch. They really are a strange lot. They sing and sing and sing the same thing over and over again. They hold their hands up in church, imagine. They play drums and they make a lot of noise. And sometimes even somebody shouts out hallelujah. You see those Church of Ireland folk? I'm sure their knees are sore. <laughs> getting up and down, kneeling and all of that there. Do you think they're saved at all? <laughs> There's people actually think that because they follow it, not us. But listen, 
if they're born again of God's Spirit, if they're washed in the blood of the Lamb, if they believe this is the infallible word of truth of God, then whether they're happy, clappy, or smells and bells, then they're my brother and they're my sister in Christ, and they're loved by the Lord. And we've got to do our best to love each other in Christ. <sighs> However, after the end of three years, three and a half years actually with the master, he began to show some tremendous qualities. In spite of his youthful pride and arrogance and sectarianism and not liking those Samaritans, but he became such a humble man that the time he began to write his gospel and his epistles and revelation. You know, in his gospel, he never once refers to himself by name. He never once says, you know, I or John. The other gospel writers, 30 times I refer to him as John, but never once does he do it. It's either that other disciple or one of the two, or that disciple whom Jesus loved. Five times he said that. He, he just couldn't quite get over the fact that Jesus loved him. Yes, he knew he loved them all, but he loves me. That's the, that was the thing with John. And he, was, he loved to write that, but never mentioned his own name. Now, there's a, a lovely thing about humility, isn't it? Uh, and you know, when he writes his third little letter, third epistle, he mentions three men. The well-beloved Gaius, Demetrius, the man of good report, and Diotrephes, whom he said, who loves to have the preeminence. Imagine that. Here's a man who wanted to sit at the right hand of Christ in his kingdom. Here's a man who didn't want anybody else to get in the limelight, only himself. But by this time, he's humbled. And he's saying about Diotrephes, he loves to have the preeminence. He's a big shot. He loves to be the big shot in church, that fella. <laughs> Pastor friend of mine, Jason's father, in fact, William Dick, one time he says, I was preaching this church in America. <laughs> he says, the pastor called me into his office afterwards. It was the biggest desk, he says, I've ever seen in my life. And it was on a plinth. And he says, my wee chair was sitting the way down. He says, I was sitting looking up at him. He says, it was like sitting before the judge in a high court. <laughs> Wasn't much humility there. <laughs> Another pastor who, well, he's not really a pastor. He, he, used to, he used to be the editor of Charisma Magazine, Lee Grady, you call him. And uh, if you don't know, Charisma Magazine is the biggest, I suppose the biggest selling magazine for charismatic Pentecostals in America. All the big names all advertise on it. And he says that a, a close personal friend of his, a pastor one time, told him he invited this, this big name preacher to come to his church. He advertised it widely place was packed to the doors and he says he arrived in a big stretch limo with strict instructions that the air con in it had to be the same temperature when he gets in again as when he left and he says he came in just as the service was about to start he got up, he preached he, he raised the offering and he took it 
And at the end of the service, he walked off, got into his limo and drove off, never spoke to the pastor, never even shook his hand. Let's have some humility, please. <coughs> Do you think God is pleased with that? I don't think so. And here's John, one of the greatest apostles ever. And he doesn't even write his own name in his gospel because he's humbled. Love and truth were two of his abiding passions. His first epistle he uses the word, a word for love, 50 times. He was desperate that the church love one another. He knew, knows that Christ loves us and we love Christ, but that in itself is not enough. We've got to love one another. And now he's driving that home. My little children, he calls them, because he's an old man now, he's a senior man. My little children, love one another. He hammered and hammered that to make sure they got the message. Christ did that in John 13 and John 15, didn't he? This is my commandment. Not even suggesting it. It's my commandment that you love one another. Huh. John's love for Christ was very clearly seen. You know, in John 18, 15, and 16, if you read between the lines there, it looks like that was John actually at the trial of Christ. We know Peter was there. But remember we told you when we talked about uh, Andrew, I think it was, how that it seemed to be there was a connection with the high priest in Jerusalem. So it seems to be that John was able to get in at the trial. He couldn't do anything about it, but he got there. But Peter came, and probably he got Peter into that court, and Peter denied him. But John was there. He was there watching it, listening. The lies, the vitriol that was poured out against the master. Couldn't do anything. But it would appear that John was right there when that was happening. And of course... We know that around the cross, he was the only one when Jesus was being crucified. Just Mary and a few women and John. Did he take Mary home after Jesus says, behold your son? Did he take Mary away from the cross at that point to save her looking at the horror that was a visit upon her son where he's being done to death? We don't know, but what we do know, either he went and come back or stayed, but we do know that he was the one who said about Christ being on that cross. He was the one, the only one who records Jesus saying, I thirst and it is finished. He's the only one to record that Joseph of Arimathea was the one and his companion who took the body of Jesus for burial. John's the one who writes that. And we know that whenever the word came back that Jesus had risen and John and Peter ran to the tomb together, but John being younger than Peter outran Peter and got to the tomb first, but he didn't go in. But Peter being Peter, he just pushed him aside just right in because we know that was what Peter liked. And, he, and then John goes in and it was John who noticed the way the grave clothes were. So he was very, very observant. And so John is the one who was right there at the end. When all others had forsook him, 
and had denied him and betrayed him, John was there. And thank God he was to take care of Jesus' mother to the day that she died. For those of you who have been to Ephesus, you know there's, they say, well, this is where, this is where Jesus' mother was buried, and we've been there and looked at where she's supposed to be buried, but we don't know that for sure. Nobody knows that for sure. But what we do know is that John did take care of her until she did die. John and Peter were great friends. You see that in the book of Acts, Acts 3 and Acts 8. You can read that in your own time. I haven't time this morning. You can see how they, they did great uh, exploits together. And uh, they, they were just seemed to be always together doing things for the kingdom of God. And, uh, and that's wonderful, isn't it? They grew up together, they worked together, and they served the Lord together, and here they are. His final days, as we close. Irenaeus, friend of Polycarp. Polycarp was John's successors, the senior man at Ephesus. And it says that, uh, he says that John lived at Ephesus to the time of Trajan, who became emperor in 1898. And it seems to be he was the one who allowed John to come back again to Ephesus for his final days there. And, uh, and John, what a, what a wonderful servant of God, the apostle of love, the one who wanted truth to prevail in everything, the one who lived the longest of all of them, the one who was a living martyr, as it were, and even though he died a natural death, others dispute that and said he was so I tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work and all there's all kinds of stories but, but we do know he lived the longest and that uh, he went to his reward what a wonderful servant of God all of them different we've looked at Peter and Andrew and James and now John tonight we want to look at Philip all of them different all of them personality wise ability wise and all the rest all completely different but yet the Lord used every single one of them he didn't look for the brightest he didn't look for the most clever he didn't look for the most educated he didn't look for the most athletic he didn't look for the most beautiful looking he, he just chose ordinary humble men from Galilee the only one from Judea was Judas we'll talk about him at the end just ordinary people, just like us, ordinary people like us. And yet, with those ordinary men, he turned the world upside down. And, and the consequences of what they did for Jesus in their generation is with us today, 2,000 years later. So the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. That night, he went up into the mountain to pray, to select those 12, even including the traitor, he knew exactly who he wanted and exactly what he was doing. And he up and he prayed and he felt that confirmed by the Father and he came down and he picked out of that 70, he picked those 12. Not a one of us would have picked one of them. We wouldn't have picked any of them. But Jesus did. Would anybody have picked us? Probably not. But Jesus did. Because he sees something in us that he can use for his honor and for his glory. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you take the ordinary and you do extraordinary things with them. We thank you, Lord, that you chose us. Not that we deserved it. Not that there's anything, Lord, that would be attractive about us. But somehow in your mercy and in your wisdom, 
and in your foreknowledge, somehow, Lord, you chose us to bring you honor and to bring you glory. And so we are grateful today for that. We thank you, Lord, that we belong to you, that all of us today are your servants and your sons and your daughters, part of your great family. And so, Lord, help us to be encouraged by these stories. Help us to see ourselves in these men and then be encouraged by it. But, Lord, you can take the least of us and you can honor yourself through us and give yourself glory through our lives. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.